Good afternoon. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president here at the Cato Institute. And we are here today for a book forum for this work, The Republic of Virtue by F.H. Buckley. Um, at the beginning, uh, on the administrative side, we'll have about an hour or so of discussion, if you know how we do these things, and then we'll have some Q&A, and then go to lunch about 1.30 or so. Might I ask you at this time, as I will do myself now, to please silence your cell phone so that we're not disturbed uh, down the line. So our topic today could not be more timely, and it could also not be more perennial, the target of corruption, the idea that is the notion of corruption. What is corruption? That is, in itself is a long-standing debate. I would propose at the beginning, and I think Frank, uh, Frank Buckley would agree with me, that in whatever else, corruption has something to do with turning something that should be about public goods, public ends, the res publica in the past, turning that into a private good for private ends. We can add to that, but that's the basic idea. That it's some, a, a perversion of government uh, in various ways. Why does it matter? Well, Frank will speak to that, but I think also we have to realize that in preparing for this, I came across a great deal of evidence, for example, that the Roman Republic and great thinkers at the Roman Republic were obsessed with the problem of corruption. And in fact, there's a new volume out that I could recommend to you called Anti-Corruption in History from Oxford University Press. And they go through the history of attempts to try to deal with corruption in government. Various uh, civilizations, various countries over time have struggled with this problem of corruption. So today, in that sense, our book and Frank's work on it is a continuation of a long tradition. And indeed, the American founders themselves were uh, deeply concerned about corruption. Um, the Republic of Virtue has as its uh, subtitle, How We Tried to Ban Corruption, Failed, and What We Can Do About It. And so I uh, hope you will join me in welcoming Frank Buckley and his new book, The Republic of Virtue. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm very happy to see you. Uh, an author is always happy to talk about himself, and if he's got a book to talk about, it's very heaven, so this is great. Before I begin, I'd, I'd like to, for a moment, pay tribute to someone whom John knows and who was at a Cato event with me two years ago, Jim Wooten, who was really the inspiration for the book. Jim was, for many years, the head of the Institute of Legal Reform at the U.S. Chamber, a great friend of mine, somebody passionately devoted to his country and to the problem of corruption. And when he spoke two years back, he was ill and dying of the cancer which would kill him in six months. I don't know, I've never met a more moral person than Jim, and so I remember him. Uh, I'd like to begin by exposing myself as not entirely an American because I am a dual, I'm a Canadian, and so I, I've always had, as Canadians do, a fascination with Americans. I naturalized a few years back. Americans, it seemed to me, are people of loud exuberance but also of quiet nobility, and the quiet nobility expresses itself in a kind of, a, a sort of Humphrey Bogart-like knowledge that the world is corrupt 
and will betray you, but yet deep down one has a sense of how one's not going to compromise with that and one will rise above that. So there's always that kind of bifurcation. We recognize that America is corrupt and we recognize that the corruption imposes a cost, a big economic cost, and yet we're not happy with it. We want to do something about it. And that indeed can be traced to our very founding because my argument is you can't begin to understand the Constitution unless you recognize that it's an anti-corruption covenant. It's perhaps not fashionable among some people to pay great respect to the framers, to the founders of America, and to the Constitution. But if we are Americans, we are Americans because they made us Americans. And we cannot dislike them, despise them without disliking ourselves. And if we fault them for things they missed, things they compromised with, we fault them in the language that they gave us, after all. Now, corruption was a big deal for them because whilst they admired Britain greatly, yet there were a few things about Britain they didn't want. They didn't want British superciliousness. They didn't want a British monarchy. And they didn't want mostly British corruption. And so they thought they could do something better. And time and again, when they seemed on the verge of a split up, it was the idea that they could have a corruption-free government that brought them together. We look back and we think that things had to turn out as they did. Nothing could be further from the truth. They nearly split apart. They threatened each other with, with, with uh, civil war. They threatened each other with a hangman's noose. James Madison, who falsely is thought to be the father of the Constitution, I think nearly led a walkout on July 17, 1787. I think that's the most important day in American history. Why? Because after that aborted walkout at a morning's breakfast on July 17, Governor Morris brought everyone together with a speech about how they could create a constitution which would be free of corruption. Whether they did or not is an open question, but nevertheless, the fear of corruption was an a very powerful instinct amongst them. They were enjoying what J.G.A. Pocock, the historian, called a Machiavellian moment. Why Machiavelli? Because Machiavelli, reading the recently translated or recently discovered books of Roman history, said that the Florentine Republic could use the same kind of Roman virtue that, that people like Lunius Junius Brutus had, what kind of virtue am I talking about? The, the disinterested virtue of a person who will serve his country and put it above his own private interests. That's what virtue meant to them, and it's what virtue meant to the founders as well. And I argued that in 2016, we had also something like a Machiavellian moment. Why? Because we saw rising from almost obscurity in some cases, people running successfully for the presidency. I'm thinking, of course, of Trump, but mostly I'm thinking of people like Bernie Sanders and Ben Carson. I'm thinking about people who rose from nowhere, uh, in the case of Carson, and uh, somehow mounted a successful or almost successful campaign for the presidency. And, um, and, and Trump himself made corruption an, an, an issue in the campaign. But here's the problem. The fear of corruption, which was a great part of the Constitution, like a boomerang, reared back and struck it, it, the founders on the head because they gave us 
a kind of constitution which I think is quite susceptible to corruption. Um, it's a presidential regime, and a presidential regime is one in which presidents are permitted to hide the rabbit and fail to disclose evidence of corruption and wait things out. People have written about the Clinton impeachment in 1998, say, well, that's what happened in that case, right? He just sat on information until at last you could say, well, that's old news. Um, the same thing, I think, was true with respect to the IRS scandals of a couple of years back. You sit on the news and finally you say there's not a smidgen of evidence. Con contrast that with a parliamentary system where the opposition can hold the government's feet to the fire for a full month until finally the entire nation says this is enough, we have to throw the rascals out. Um, other problems with America, the country is too darn big. The country is too darn rich. The stakes associated with gaining a little piece of the action in Washington are far greater than would be the case, say, in Auckland, New Zealand or, or Canberra, Australia. Um, and then there's one other thing which I think is most important right now. It's something I call polymarchism. Polymarchus was somebody that Socrates met on his way back from the Piraeus at the beginning of the Republic. And, you know, Socrates asked these questions, right? And, you know, and stupid people will answer them. And Polymarchus is one of them. And the question is, what is justice? And Polymarchus says, justice is doing good to your friends and evil to your enemies. And it, it doesn't take very long for Socrates to demolish that. I mean, that's, that's the crudest kind of of theory of of, of, of of the good, right? But yet, you know, when you look around, that seems to be what's happening in America right now. Why? Because we've become so completely ideological, so completely split, so unwilling to see any kind of positive argument on the other side, that it all becomes a question of, well, um, who's, you know, who am I for? And, and sometimes that makes a great deal of sense, right? I mean, uh, if you remember Edwin Edwards, the uh, admittedly very corrupt governor of Louisiana uh, a few years back, he at one point was running against David Duke from the Klan. And the slogan went around, vote for the lizard, not for the wizard, right? So it's, it's entirely, it makes a great deal of sense to vote for somebody who's totally corrupt if the alternative is far worse. And you know something, I think that probably explains why 63 million people voted for Hillary Clinton back in, in 2016. I mean, look, I mean, um, there may be many virtues that Hillary Clinton had, uh, uh, virtues that have, uh, uh, somehow I haven't noted, but nevertheless, um, you know, the people who voted for her might well have said, yes, well, the alternative is going to be far worse. Although, you know something, I, it seems to me that but for the taint of corruption, things might well have turned out the other way. In other words, but for the taint of corruption, there might have been, as there were many Bernie Sanders voters who voted for Trump or, or who just stayed home. I mean, recall that in 2015, the New York Times itself reported it's hard to tell where the, uh, the Clinton Foundation ends and the State Department begins. So, you know, th th this, this was a trying moment for people who took corruption seriously. Um, 
you know, I, I, I will declare my biases. I know that Hillary Clinton at this point proposes to become a Methodist minister, and I recall what, in similar circumstances, Baudelaire said. Baudelaire said, I, I, I do not know why she is permitted to enter into a church. What conversation could she have with God? Uh, so, but in any event, on the matter of corruption in 2016, I think we had something of a Machiavellian moment. And, and what do we do about it to cure this? Um, I have a number of suggestions in the book, which I, I, I won't, which mostly I'll, I'll, I'll leave for, uh, for the others on the panel. Um, one thing I had in mind derived from Jim Wooten, and, and that was the scandal of interstate litigation and the practice of Mississippi trial lawyers to stick it to out-of-state defendants. And when I researched that, I found something absolutely fascinating. Many of you will remember the circumstances of the civil rights murders in 1964 in Philadelphia, Mississippi. That was the incident that produced, I think, the 1964 Civil Rights Bill. Three civil rights workers were murdered by a, a Ku Klux Klan uh, group that included the deputy sheriff of, of Neshoba County. And what was behind that was a, a Mississippi machine led by Senator Big Jim Eastland. Now here's what I found fascinating. The people behind that, the, the Mississippi White Citizens Council at all became the very same people who supported the, the Mississippi trial lawyers in the 1990s, right? Um, in a scandal that eventually put Dickie Scruggs in jail. But you know, there, there's a moment where these Mississippi trial lawyers are these great heroes, <laughs> but they came from the same method of operation of the White Citizens Council, which is we don't talk to outsiders, we look after ourselves and we stick at the people from out of state. In 1964, their names were Schwerner and Cheney and Goodwin. And, uh, you know, in the 1990s, they were out-of-state uh, companies, uh, low-end industries, for example. Uh, same MO, and if you like the trial lawyers in that case, you're on the wrong side of corruption. On other stuff, again, I'm, I'm running out of time, I think, but I will mention that uh, I had this reaction to campaign finance laws. I thought generally we should just get rid of the whole lot of them. I thought that we had taken the wrong path, you see. I thought that we were creating more corruption with our obsession over micromanaging electoral contributions than we were curing. I thought it would be better, after all, if there were no limits on campaign contributions. Why? Because our, our, our campaign finance laws have this curious feature. They're like a net that has, that permits the big fish to sail through, but catches only the small fish. And what it does is it makes it a crime to get involved in politics unless you have a lawyer at your side. And even if you have a, a lawyer at your side sometimes. I, I, I started this little group, right? And we spent a couple of hundred bucks and we were gonna spend a bit more. And then I realized that if we went over a thousand bucks, we'd have to form a political action committee and then you know, looking at the very helpful 124-page pamphlet put out by the Federal Election Commission, I realized 
you know, I'm going to have to register, tax ID number, get an accountant, quarterly reports, uh, criminal sanctions if you, if you miss anything, right? And in the hands of a partisan prosecutor, and there are enough of those people around, that's an open invitation to put your political enemies into jail. And that happens, and it's bipartisan. The Republicans do it when they're in power. The Democrats do it. Um, better to let ordinary people believe that they can participate in politics on their own without having to worry about it. I would also, uh, as has been suggested elsewhere, propose donor anonymity. That's dark money, right? That's the sort of thing that people scream about when they want to scream about the scandal of Republican money in politics, right? Let's force out disclosure. But you know what forcing out disclosure means? It's not going to bother, you know, all that many of the, the big guys. Many of them are ide ideological, and, and they're not really looking for a handout. Um, where it tends to be a problem is with the small fry. Now, I'll just give you one for instance, and then I'll sit down. There is a website, I forget what it's called, and I wouldn't mention its name if I, if I could remember it. But what it does is it lists the names of all of the Trump donors in 2016 in the district. It gives their addresses. It gives the names of their spouse and their children. And it offers useful tips. It says, as to one lady, for example, she tends to go jogging here, and I bet one of our people could follow her and uh, probably outrace her. And all of that's you know, easily accessible on this website. The, the top of the list says, these are your neighbors, and the bottom says, fascism has its consequences. Right? And of course, it can, you know, there, there, there is this disclaimer, of course, we're not suggesting violence, you know. So I think in the end, we have this historical problem of corruption. We haven't quite known how to deal with it. And what we've done, I think, often has made things worse. I have a few small suggestions, positive ones, uh, which involve lobbyists, but I think I will let my colleagues speak to that. So I, I owe Frank an apology. I was so anxious to hear what he might have to say that I forgot to introduce him. Frank is a foundation professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. He's a longtime student of law and economics, but he is also engaged in the arena. He's senior editor at the American Spectator, writes a column at the New York Post, which you can look for, and several other more popular writings. Most importantly, his most recent books are The Way Back, Restoring the Promise of America, which we had a small event here at Cato about, and a bigger event on The Once and Future King, which came out in 2015. Frank is somewhat skeptical, one might say, about the presidential system. So thanks for that, Frank. I'm sorry. So I won't make that mistake with our commentator today. Uh, Michael Levy is policy director at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Schreck, where he works on matters involving the executive and legislative branches of the federal government. He also served as a distinguished teaching professor at the Georgetown University School of Business for more than a decade. Michael's practice focuses on financial services, health care, taxes, and trade. 
Previously, Michael was the Assistant Secretary of Legislative Affairs for the US Department of the Treasury and Senior Advisor to Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin. He was responsible for passing the Treasury's legislative agenda into law and coordinating the activities not only of Treasury's legislative affairs staff, but many related agencies. He also coordinated the Treasury's legislative agenda with the Office of Legislative Affairs at the White House. From 1987 to 93, Michael served as Chief of Staff to former U.S. Senator Lloyd Benson. He worked as staff economist at the Joint Economic Committee, also from 85 to 87. But from 1978 to 85, Michael was an associate professor of, uh, at Texas A&M University, where he was granted tenure in 1984. He specialized in political theory. I know that because I've known Michael for 40 years. He's the ideal commentator here. He's smart, he's learned, and he's vastly experienced. So we're very happy to, for the first time, welcome Michael Levy to the Cato Institute. Usually people stand. I want to show you the proof that I read the book. It's intimidating. An intimidating tome. First of all, uh, John, thank you for the invitation, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to get to read not only Frank's book, but to get to know his work a little better. Uh, it's quite an impressive oeuvre, as they say in French, and that's one of the three French words I know. But uh, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really a, a huge, this book is a huge run through an awful lot of things in American political history, American political thought, political theory in general, economics, public policy, and even statistics. So you go from the concept of corruption in the early in, uh, English constitutional debates through a discussion at the end of least squares and how you use that statistical connect, uh, technique to do uh, uh, various kinds of uh, uh, manip statistical manipulations. Uh, so I enjoyed uh, almost every page, uh, a little bit too much, I think, actually. Um, the book is in some ways six books in one, and each section of the book could be a book into itself or a monograph unto itself, but it all coheres into a, an argument. It's an argument I uh, enjoyed, at, and of the six arguments, many of them I agreed with, some of them I quibbled with, and I think I'll kind of walk you through them uh, uh, in, in some detail. It's, it's a book about the concept of virtue, really a fascinating concept in, in Republican thought. It's an interesting book about the transformation of the American founding from a type of classical republicanism to a type of, uh, I think, liberal republicanism, and the liberal republicanism owes, as Frank suggests, as much to the Reformation as it does to the, the Renaissance, not its, not its piousness, but its concept of human nature. It's an interesting use of public choice, of the important concept of rent and its relationship to corruption. Uh, it is a very unusual uh, discussion of the superiority of the parliamentary system to the presidential system, something that Frank has worked on in other venues uh, more completely, but it's, it's part of the argument. It's, I think, unusual for a libertarian audience to be presented this position by someone who's sympathetic to the libertarian position, and I'll discuss that a little bit later. And it's a very important discussion of campaign finance reform and lobbying 
and makes an interesting uh, sort of suggestion that campaign finance reform doesn't really work, but lobbying reform really probably will, and it's a scourge that needs to be eliminated. And I will address that, not because I'm a lobbyist, but because I think that from an intellectual position, actually the two are rather similar, and it's hard to make uh, the distinction both for better and for worse between the two. Let me begin with a, a quick discussion about virtue. Um, virtue is a fascinating concept in American political thought, and it does go back to Machiavelli, who not only uh, is interested in, in an Italian republic, starting with Florence, but who has just lived through Savonarola, and he's lived through an Augustinian, uh, sort of a messianic Christian concept of virtue, and he finds it quite wanting. And he wants to resurrect a Roman concept of virtu, manliness, courage, disinterestedness, willing to sacrifice for the common good. And he suggests to the ruling family, you can be this great lawgiver who unifies all of uh, 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 Italy and lives on in, in history, showing your virtu, your or weird too, as I would have learned in my high school Latin zone. Uh, the American uh, virtuous person in the pre-constitutional era was the independent yeoman farmer who owned land, owned property, might have owned slaves, might not, was independent financially, served in a state legislature with other independent yeomen, similarly situated, so their individual interests and their common interests were all extremely similar. They would sacrifice for the common good because they benefited from the common good. Mansur Olson's words, they lacked the coordination problem between the individual and the collective. And they would show that virtu in the militia. And Madison, himself a landowner and beginning in life, a classical Republican, was a devotee of the militia, served in the militia, only wanted militias to, to fight in, in the War of 1812, um, sort of thought that part of Adam Smith was just dead wrong, the standing army was terrible, and was quite willing to let the city of Washington fall, defended by militias, rather than uh, defended with a standing army. Uh, that kind of value set emphasized individual independence. You weren't dependent on anyone or anything, therefore you could serve the common good. When Fritz Hollings on the floor of the United States Senate called Lloyd Benson the senator from Texaco, he didn't mean that he was taking campaign contributions from Texaco. It would have been a pittance, really, compared to everything else he raised. It didn't even mean that he was corrupt, because actually he was anything but corrupt in the everyday sense of, of the word in American politics. He meant that he wasn't independent. He couldn't think of the public's good in oil and gas policy. He could only think of the oil and gas industry's good, which in Texas might well have been the public good. Uh, in the same sense today, one might say, well, if you're a scholar at a think tank, and that think tank is really financed by the following four people, and they have these economic interests, you cannot be an independent person. You cannot have real virtu. You cannot be uh, someone who thinks about the common good because in some sense, you're owned. So the concept is very, very different from any sense of concept of virtue that we currently use in everyday discourse. And it's one, as, as uh, Professor Buckley notes, that began to disappear quickly in the Madisonian context, in the, in the constitutional context. And by, by the time of Andrew 
Jackson, it had really been transformed into a, a different concept of, of bourgeois free market virtue, delaying uh, uh, grat you know, gratification today for the sake of something tomorrow, a different type of sacrifice than sacrificing for the common good. Um, Madison correctly, in Federalist 10 and 51, two really great uh, texts in, in the founding, gives up on this. Uh, Frank walks us through his attempt to create a system of filtration. I think that I, I wish you'd talk about it more, actually. It's a fascinating uh, discourse in the book and ultimately gets to a system of separation of powers and checks and balances. This is uh, really the American giving up on classical republicanism and saying rather than soul craft, cha transforming people into virtuous disinterested entities, we're gonna deal with statecraft, how we check and balance interests, both in the polity with the separation of powers and in the society with a very complex um, society over many, many states and a huge geographic expansion, the extended sphere that Madison talks about and Frank points out. And those checks and balances in, in the society will make it harder for any one faction to dominate. So, this, of course, gets us into uh, campaign finance reform. And is campaign finance reform uh, this corruption that undoes the American founding, or is it, in a sense, uh, consistent with it? I guess the quibble I have here is that Frank identifies campaign finance reform with an attempt to restore virtue, even uses Robespierre's phrase, the reign of virtue, and I would argue that whether it's faulty or, or successful, and I think Franks makes a lot of arguments about why it's faulty, it's an attempt really not to make us virtuous, but to create a new type of check and balance that channels self-interest in ways that doesn't destroy the polity, but allows for some kind of a, a reasonably level playing field. In other words, for me, this is a discussion that should be one led by John Dewey, not by Robespierre. Does it work? Does it make parties stronger or weaker? Does it aggregate interests better or worse? Does it create openings for new entrants or does it stop openings from new entrants? Does it give the voter transparency that helps the voter make an informed choice or does it threaten somebody with, uh, with uh, exposure in a way that, that is in fact threatening? And I think that's, uh, they, uh, they, there's an intellectual difference here. It's not fundamentally a difference about how successful campaign finance reform has been. Similarly, with the discussion of rent and corruption and its relationship to government activism, uh, Professor Buckley talks about public choice in pretty standard ways that goes back to the pioneering work of Annie Kruger and, and Gordon Tulloch, um, perhaps Mansur Olson as well, that <clears throat> associates camp government activism with the attempt to buy access through campaign finance and then to get rent in the system. And all of that I think is correct, but I think it's only half the story and it's something that we ought to consider. And I think it goes back to his discussion of new entrants that I think can even be taken further. Much of the last 30 years in American politics has been about uh, deregulation and eliminating certain existing types of rent. So we've had much freer trade until yesterday than, than we used to have. And that freer trade in NAFTA, in the WTO, in the Caribbean Basin Initiative, and many, many more, has eliminated all kinds of domestic sources of rent. 
uh, we have uh, eliminated a lot of rent in the airline industry. We eliminated, perhaps also recreated some, but in the origins at least, we eliminated a lot of rent in the telecommunications sector. We eliminated a lot of rent, rent in, when we uh, created interstate banking system and stopped uh, huge barriers to entry uh, to financial institutions in, in various states. That elimination of rent also took place in the context of a campaign finance system where people were making contributions and buying entry into the system. So government activism and its relationship to campaign finance is not simply about getting rent, but it's also about undoing rent. And I think there's been an inadequate uh, discussion of that. Um, I won't spend too much time talking about the parliamentary system. I think that's a complicated discussion. I think uh, Professor Buckley's made a really interesting heuristic contribution about how you think about it. I would note that a lot of the least corrupt systems that he notes are ones that have very well-paying civil services. Uh, they have a well-defined uh, social welfare state. Uh, they have rather strict campaign finance laws like Norway, a country that's been in the news a lot lately, I think 75% of the funding is public funding. Uh, but I don't think, by the way, that means that that's the real reason that they have uh, less corruption. But I think it's something worth thinking about. Israel has a parliamentary system. It has a prime minister who is about to leave jail. Now, I think it's to their credit that he put him in jail in the first place. But it does suggest in a parliamentary system you can have Corruption, Italy has had a parliamentary system for a long time. It's had a lot of corruption for a long time. And I would recall that the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act began when a series of American multinationals began bribing political parties in countries where there was the strong parliamentary tradition. So I think there is a, that's something that, a debate that you've started, but I think it's one that ought to continue and there ought to be a lot of empirical analysis of it. I think from a libertarian perspective, it is somewhat ironic because which doesn't mean it's bad, by the way. It's just interesting, I note, that most libertarians don't like parliamentary systems because they're very efficient politically, and you can zip something through and it becomes law. And it's classic conversation on the American left that, uh, you know, for 35 years or 50 years, polls have shown Americans want a national health insurance system like the Canadians have, and yet we never get it, the political system with all its dispersed powers stops that, look at the parliamentary system that gets it. Probably most people in this room would say, thank God. I don't know that you would say thank, thank God, because I know that you're Canadian and you rather like the system. But I think that's also one of the interesting things that are worth discussing. The last thing I will note that is something I probably do know a little bit more about than most of the things I've just discussed, and that's the scourge of lobbying. Uh, Professor Buckley notes that while you can't do much about campaign finance reform, you probably can do a fair amount about stopping uh, lobbying from creating rent and, and uh, creating uh, uh, inequities in, in the system. Uh, it is an interesting meme because Newt Gingrich did the same thing. I don't think there's any coordination between the two, but when he came into office, he got rid of lobbying gifts. He got rid of uh, lobbyist lunches, all kinds of things, but he never touched campaign finance reform. And I would note, when I first came to Washington, a lobbyist could set you up with an honorarium and you could take as many as you wanted for a, a limit, I think, of 20,000 a speech. So a lot of people uh, on both sides of the aisle became quite wealthy and never spent a day in the private sector, and they did it 
through the honorarius system. But Gingrich, that was gone by the time Gingrich came in. And he focused on lobbying reform, and we ended up with Jack Abramoff, someone who you know and have spent a lot of time debriefing and um, uh, finding out the tricks of, of the trade. Uh, there are three solutions that Professor Buckley offers. One is that contributions be anonymous so that I, as a lobbyist, can't say, just got you that last $5,000 contribution and get credit for it. You can't. Uh, secondly, that making contributions from lobbyists should be illegal. Uh, while there may be constitutional problems with that, there are constitutional cases that have upheld certain sorts of restrictions. I think every lobbyist in Washington would say, yes, thank God, they'd now have a, between themselves and their wives about $70,000 more a year that they could spend on personal business, and it wouldn't affect their business model at all. Uh, both of these, um, and we can go into the details later, uh, number one and number two, I think, can be avoided easily. And Professor Buckley says uh, one of the problems with campaign finance reform is that it can be avoided with a wee bit of effort. The we may be your Irish background, I don't know, but a wee bit of effort. And I would say that this can be avoided with not even a wee little bit of effort, but even, even, even less. The last point he makes is uh, stopping the revolving door. Uh, there are already a lot of strictures on the revolving door, but I think that's something worth talking about. I think there are constitutional issues about what someone can do with their life. We already have substantial cooling off periods, people and entities you can't talk to for a long time. Uh, I took, for example, voluntarily in the Treasury a lifetime ban on uh, supporting, uh, lobbying for a foreign government or a foreign company because uh, President Clinton, who I think uh, maybe you think was very uh, uh, corrupt, I think it, at least thought that had the appearance of corruption and didn't want it. And while he relieved people from it his last year so they could go work, I had signed it earlier on the administration, felt bound to it, and, and, and never have. But uh, I think that in the end, stopping the revolving door, first of all, members of Congress, except for Trent Lott and John Bro, are terrible lobbyists, so they're not worth very much as lobbyists. Uh, and I think when it comes to the individual, Again, you have the same issue that you have with campaign finance reformers. Let's say, hypothetically, you tell me I can't lobby. That doesn't mean a company wouldn't want to hire me, keep me in-house, tell them how to lobby, tell them who to go see, tell them how to set up their fundraisers, tell them how to anonymously get credit for their fundraisers, and so on and so forth. In fact, what it would do is make the existing incumbents, which is one of uh, Professor Buckley's critique of campaign finance reform, it would make the existing incumbents stronger because they could build these in-house infrastructures and, and, and get all the know-how and know who they need, whereas an, an, a new entrant who is absolutely new to the process and doesn't know where to go or how to go would have no one to turn to or no one to freely contract with in a contractual relationship in the marketplace. And I would just suggest that in my own experience as a lobbyist, the first few years, I was a full-time professor, but with a friend, opened a Washington office of his law firm, and we handled a series of uh, government relations activities for clients of the firm, and they were all outsiders. And we took on the big incumbents on a series of issues, and they more or less controlled the political landscape, and it gave them some control over the economic landscape, and we took them on, and in a number of cases, we defeated them. Had we not been here and had they not been able to come to us and contract to us freely in the marketplace, the incumbents and the 
oligopolists would have been favored and the new entrants would not have been. So I think a lot of your insights for campaign finance reform and why it doesn't work would, I think, apply to lobbying reform as well. Again, this is not to say that I'm against these suggestions as, or any other suggestion, because again, I approach it in the spirit of Dewey rather than the spirit of Robespierre. It's not about soul craft, it's about statecraft. How do we check and balance uh, untoward ambition and untoward interests in order to serve the public interest? So I don't see it as an attempt to restore classical republicanism, but rather to deal intelligently with the existing liberal republican regime that we have. Excellent remarks, Mike. I uh, had high expectations and you went well beyond them. Um, I wanted to say a few words, uh, being the person here at Cato, we usually have a Cato person commenting on a book. Uh, sometimes it's an outsider, sometimes a staff member. But I wanted to talk a little bit about libertarianism and corruption. But first, let me say uh, about Frank's book, you know, in a sense, it's, uh, it's not a good thing that the idea of reform, the idea that lots of the talk of corruption has been sort of like campaign finance reform community, which is kind of affiliated with the left and so on. These are issues that concern everyone. It is, after all, the public good. It's about our institutions that we all share, we all live under. So everyone should be engaged in these issues, whatever differences we have about uh, the nature of reform and so on. And Frank does that. Frank gives us from a perspective of a kind of libertarian conservative, whatever you want to call it, uh, going through and talking. And, and he's really done his research here about all of these issues, it's well worth reading in that regard. Um, and I think we need it in a sense. I want to begin my remarks by talking about what is uh, generally a libertarian response that I've often heard to the kinds of things that Frank talks about, the kinds of problems of pay for play, and uh, just generally lobbying and the appearance of corruption. And the response is this. It's a libertarian response, which is to say, take away all that government does, or much that government does, in terms of regulation and in terms of spending and subsidies and so on, if you get rid of all that, if you follow the libertarianism, if you follow the Cato agenda, you will also go get rid of the corruption problem because it goes with having such a, a large government. Now, there seems to me to be two problems with this. The first problem is how would that happen in and of itself? Well, if everyone becomes a libertarian and acts on it, they, it, it might happen. And it's an attractive kind of idea, but actually happening in the world, how we get from here to there to get rid of us, we've already gone one way, backing out of it, it's hard to see how that will happen. So there's that problem, but I want to raise an even deeper problem, I think, with it. Let's imagine that it does happen that the subsidies go way down, the regulation goes way down, all the incentives that libertarians point to go way down uh, to zero or something like that. Would you, in fact, going forward, have uh, a stable situation, non-corruption? I don't think so, and here's why. It's a prisoner's dilemma. That is to say, the rational choice for even people who are living in that world, that, where we've gotten rid of all the incentives for corruption, are going to be faced with the same problem we face today, which is the rational choice in, under competition 
and lack of knowledge is to choose to contend for more subsidies or more regulation, all the things we're concerned about. It might not be as bad as it were as it is today, but it's not going to stop because it's inherent in the situation. Now, the real answer then is the only way after the regulation has all gone away and so on, that you would have a non-corrupt regime is if everyone not only became libertarians, but they became tough rule utilitarians who could resist temptation. That is, there are people who say limited government's so important that I'm even going to stay out of this political battle which would, where I could get subsidies or favorable regulation. In other words, the ultimate critique, which is not often uh, of this view, this libertarian view of corruption, is that it requires a transformation of human nature and people in a profound way, uh, something that is not likely to happen, doesn't seem on the agenda. And I think this response to corruption is in some ways a rhetorical ploy more than anything else. It's something that seems like a good idea because, after all, these people are chasing the actions of government. They are about the benefits of regulation or regulatory mandates or whatever, or about spending. But it's not a real answer. The more plausible model libertarians have, is, as Michael mentioned, is the rent-seeking answer. That is, and this is basically the idea that goes to Manker Olson and others, is that if you're a small group, it makes more sense to organize and pay the cost of influencing government than if, if you're a large group, like the whole population or a majority of the population. Because you can spread the gains from organization and lobbying, as it were, or advocacy. You can spread it over fewer people, and they're willing to do more. And you end up with a situation in which you hear only from small groups who are highly organized and have a lot at stake. And you hear nothing from the average American, from the American population. So it's small group versus diffuse. And the prediction is small groups always win. Government's always, in a sense, corrupt. The problem with this, and you have to set aside, I think, regulation, and we can talk about that because perhaps it works better there. Consider what the federal government does. Consider three of the four big spending items for the federal government, Medicaid, Medicare, and uh, Social Security. So how exactly are, are they small groups, and who benefits from these policies? Start with Medicaid. Uh, you can make a partial argument that it's rent-seeking because uh, Medicaid, uh, which is the federal government program to subsidize health care for poor people, is in fact uh, a system that gives money to health care providers. And to an extent that's not understood, nursing home operators, right? They get an enormous part of the Medicaid budget. So they have reason to be organized. They have every reason to lobby and advocate. But consider also that Medicaid is not a small, highly organized group of beneficiaries. It is 28% of the American population receives uh, Medicaid now. It is a large group, a significant part, faction in the, or, of it. So it doesn't fit the rent-seeking model in that sense, even though it involves hundreds of billions of dollars of spending. Medicare, I can go quickly to. It is, uh, Medicare, in fact, I think shows the problems of this. I mean, Medicare is a program for uh, health care program, for health insurance program for people over 65. It is, it spends on healthcare a great deal. It enjoys in perhaps the most popular program, right? Widespread popular support. Medicare, I think, uh, 
shows an interesting th uh, sidelight on corruption, the difficulties of dealing with, or difficulties of dealing with spending. It does, you don't have to consider it corrupt, wh which is the so-called doc fix, all right? The doc fix uh, came in the late 1990s. Mike will know a lot about this, I imagine. Uh, and essentially, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans in 1995 decided that they were actually going to cut Medicare spending. And they also, and they carried that through to some degree in the 98 budget agreement. The problem was, once that became a real threat, and when is the problem was, that um, physicians didn't want to take lower rates because the reduced spending was coming out of their, what they were being paid to provide Medicare. They, they stopped providing the, the uh, services to constituents. The constituents went to Washington. And you, since you couldn't back down on the idea that you had achieved something in cutting spending, you got the doc fix, which was a kind of uh, idea that one day we will cut. And you let this uh, spending on physician fees mount up over time, over about 15 years or so. In other words, you didn't cut spending. And between the, but from terms of Medicare, it's the constituency plus the provider that increase the spending. And of course, with Social Security, Social Security, there, is no, there are no providers. There are checks. The voters and people who receive Social Security are the ones that benefit from the program. There, again, it's a large percentage of the population and a growing percentage. Uh, so all of these suggest on the spending side that corruption is a very difficult thing and that's to deal with. It's one thing I also want to raise in finishing here. Uh, is that perhaps we have not dealt with the question of corruption in our discussions here, and we rarely do in the United States, um, and because we identify the wrong source of it. It's true, let's, so let's say the general notion is uh, swamp people, right? It's the people here in DC, the lobbyists, the healthcare provider, whatever, whomever. It's a small elite that's causing the problems. But let me ask a couple of questions about corruption. I, I want to raise the question, do Americans really oppose corruption of government? But then that raises the question, what does corruption mean? Let me give you a couple of examples, and there could be others added to this. In my discussions and thoughts about uh, campaign finance, I came across this circumstance in 2015, 2016. I don't remember when Bernie Sanders went to West Virginia. But he went to West Virginia, and he was in trouble, but it looked like he, could make, he thought he could make a breakout in West Virginia. So he campaigned there on the notion that there was a fund that covered uh, health care for miners, who, uh, my, people who work in mining, uh, who, which was in bad fiscal condition. And there was some controversy about whether the federal government would bail it out or not, right? So Bernie Sanders was looking for voters. He went to West Virginia. And he did two things. He said, I will guarantee you if I become president, this uh, fund for the health care for minors will be bailed out. He said something else, I will spend more as president on Medicare. Now, both of these claims uh, are he went directly to people who were going to vote for them, and he told them that he would give them money if they voted for him. Correct? I mean, that's one way to think about it. You can add a bunch, we would be inclined to add a bunch of stuff to it. But the reality was he went to a bunch of people and told them he would give them money if they would vote for him. Now, how is that not corruption? If that, that's, how is that not a corrupt exchange? Number two, and I, you know, you could pick on, maybe this is gonna sound, I pick on Bernie Sanders because he is 
you know, arguably the one person who stands against corruption. In, and I just want to raise that question in that context. This is not a partisan thing. You can find this all the time in uh, politicians. The other one, though, is free university tuition. I mean, essentially, you're telling people, if you vote for them, uh, what you're actually telling them probably is you'll have to pay for this later, and you can also force other people who didn't go to college to pay for this, because if we have free university tuition, it's all going to be debt anyway. But you're telling them on the surface that, you know, actually, I'm going to give you something worth anywhere from, what, $20,000 to $200? And so you're offering voters money. Now, again, this is not, this system in a way tends to do that way. The smart politics, whatever the debate is, is to tell people, you know what, you vote for me, I'll give you this or that. Uh, our friend Mike Munger, who's a professor at Duke University, ran for governor uh, some years ago and, and made kind of a, a joke out of all of this in which he said, he came out straight, began his campaign, he said, vote for me and I'll give you $1,000. So he just sort of cut through the, but that was a, that was a cut through the rhetoric, rhetorical part on top and the policy stuff, just vote for me. But he was joking because Mike's a funny guy. But, you know, I, I raise questions. Why is it that that's not corruption? Why is that good politics? Do Americans really oppose it or do they oppose some kinds of corruption about things they don't like? Um, with that, I want to finish my comments. And we have plenty of time, I believe, for uh, questions and answers. And so let's go to that now. Let me say, as an administrative matter, uh, please raise your hand. I will call on you or point generally in your direction. Forgive me for being rude, since I don't know your name in front. I'll say this person on the aisle or whatever. Uh, please wait till the microphone comes to you and you've been called on. And use the microphone so everyone can hear, but also the people who are watching this online. And we do ask that you say your name and affiliation, but uh, along with Frank, we, uh, we don't require mandated anonymity, but we tolerate it. If you don't, for some reason, you don't want to identify who you are. Um, and then we'll go, and also if you have, want to direct it, say, to Frank or to Mike or both of them, you might want to tell us exactly who you're directing the question to. So who would like to go first? The gentleman in the middle, in the back, please. It'll be that sort of identification. If I don't hear, translate. Okay. What, is, it, is the mic working? I don't think there. Oh, yeah, no, it's working. Uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And you mentioned, uh, first of all, I mean, I'm a fan of President Trump. I think that he is the uh, most uh, honest person who speaks his mind. He is the most successful libertarian and uh, capitalist person America could have as a president. Uh, you mentioned something about Bibi Netanyahu and the Italian government in terms of parliamentary system. And my question is, let's call for a minute these people, like Trump, uh, technocrate, versus these third world, or Israeli, or Italian prime minister. I do not know their background, but their background is like kind of middle class. In terms of that, Pakistani prime minister, Nawaz if he was born and raised up in a like, couple of thousand uh, uh, yard uh, uh, house, in other words, ghetto, Mr. 10%. He was selling ticket for four or five cent uh, uh, per ticket. Now these people are capable of owning private jet, not on their own name, but their 
crony's name. So my question is, isn't these technocrates like uh, 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 Trump better than these corrupt who have no background, no history, and they are just thieves? And who caused more corruption, these successful people like Trump, or the, these people who have you know, no history of su being successful in business or anything, they just manipulate the parliamentarian system, become prime minister, and their, their whole objective okay, is to okay, make money thank and you. send that money abroad. Thank Thanks. you very much for the question. Uh, so you might want to go more generally, too. Often people say that President Trump is corrupt. What, uh, what kind of views do we have on well, that? I, I don't want to defend virtue generally in the case of President Trump. I, I did want to talk about a certain definition of virtue, which I called, or is called, Republican virtue, and that's the virtue of a political leader who is not in it for himself, who in a disinterested manner seeks to serve the public good, right? So there are a whole bunch of vices not included, uh, or virtues not included in that definition of virtue. Um, you know, when the title of the book, The Republic of Virtue, was really meant to be ironic because what I wanted to point out was the impossibility of a perfectly virtuous government. And I said that those people who tried to give us that, like Robespierre, found that it entailed cutting off a few heads. So we don't want to go there. We must therefore necessarily live in a second best world not to be cured by libertarian solutions. I mean, yes, of course, take away government completely and we'll not have the problem, rots a ruck, right? Um, and equally, the response from the left, if only we could filter perfectly the wishes of the people, all such ills would disappear. Or even immediately, what used to be called pluralism, which is the idea that somehow if all of the interest groups have a voice in Washington, what will happen is only the best kind of ideas will filter through. I think there are probably some people who still believe that, but not very many, I think. I think rather we'd think that bad ideas in the end would come to triumph. You know, there was a story this morning in the paper about how we have in mind to create a tariff for solar panels coming from other countries. And some of you will remember the Solyndra loan guarantee scandal of about four years back, right? One of the more foolish things done by the Obama administration was to guarantee uh, the, the manu a domestic manufacturer of solar panels that was selling its goods um, at a price uh, under cost, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and we're doing the same thing economically if we have a tariff on importing those solar panels, right? So, um, you know, Frederick Schiller said, against stupidity, the gods themselves are helpless. And he hadn't even met a Republican. So we live in a second best world, and we're going to have to simply accept that and tinker where we can. Mike, anything? Uh, well, I don't have much to add. I would say we do live in a second best world, but there are third and fourth 
worlds as well that are even worse. I'm not referring to the third world as we discussed it, but so <laughs> I think there are levels of corruption. There, I think levels of corruption inhibit economic growth. I think they inhibit trust, not only in government, but in your fellow citizens, which I think makes societies more and more untenable. I think uh, the, the, the questioner's points about Pakistan are worthy of a long, long, long discussion but no doubt there's been a long history of corruption in Pakistan and it's made it harder for Pakistan to develop. I, th I think in India where the, the Raj uh, regime, the license Raj was invited corruption, the elimination of a lot of that, and I think this would be a libertarian would find a great deal of delight in that, has eliminated large amounts of corruption, not eliminated it, but made it less so. So I think there are lessons to be learned in all of these places and there are the United States, by far, is not one of the worst examples of that. In, in fact, I grew up in Baltimore, so um, um, <laughs> I went to graduate school in New Jersey. Uh, uh, and uh, despite what Frank says, Texas is not as great as he thinks it is. It's just better than Louisiana in that score. So we have a lot of corruption throughout the United States, but it's not as bad and it's not as deleterious and it's not as destructive. And so I, and I think it can even get better. But we, we have less of it than we used to have, for better and for worse. I noted that the president the other day was bemoaning uh, his inability to essentially buy some extra votes. Uh, uh, and of course, we got rid of the very thing he was asking to restore, precisely because of the corruption that had been associated with it. And it was done by Republicans reining themselves in. Maybe, you know, it's not your everyday thing, but they were so afraid of a monstrosity they had created not, not the earmark, but the, what, what had evolved in the earmark world, that they wanted to rein it in before it, it, it destroyed them. And I think, uh, um, you know, corruption has its virtues, but it, it is not virtue. I, I want to follow up on that uh, for the moment. But first of all, I'm required to say, despite the fact that I suggested that libertarianism does not mean no government. You know, I mean, there may be a few people in this <coughs> building that believe this, but James Madison is also a, a sort of shadow over or an ideal for us. So institutions matter and so on. That's, but I did suggest that, I agree. So here's my very specific thing. Uh, I knew someone that went to work in, in the earmark era, which possibly could come back, that went to work for a subcommittee of House Appropriations that was overseen by a cardinal. I got onto an elevator where I live and saw a person there that used to work for Congress, and I said to him, so-and-so has went to the uh, staff committee on this and that. And his response to me at that time was, oh, well, he's going to be very wealthy one day, right? So I wonder, for me, you know, I'd say, well, okay. But I think a lot of Americans, if they knew about that conversation and uh, they would find something, thought something had gone really off track. And this is, uh, I'm getting toward the question probably of appearances because there is a, uh, uh, there's a real argument, public good argument for uh, earmarks and so on. But I'm wondering how, uh, in a sense, one deals with that. Even if it's, in the end, it's a false view, it's one that's very widespread. Any comments? Well, I would just say that uh, the, there is a difference between the reality of corruption and the appearance of corruption. And too often for political gain or glory or fame, people eliminate that distinction. Having said that, 
The appearance of corruption is not a good thing for a democratic society that freely taxes itself. And so people should have a fair amount of confidence that they're not being stolen from on a daily basis for the benefit of somebody else. Uh, similarly, I think we, we, we would do well not to pretend there's corruption when there isn't. Take what is a potential appearance and turn it into the reality. And I think there's much, much too much of that. But having said that, I think that there is a political, uh, there is a public good in trying to rein in the appearance of, of corruption. And that's not something that should be simply dismissed. There were two books that were powerfully important in explaining the 2016 election, both of them written by Peter Schweitzer. Of course, the Clinton cash machine was hugely important, but before then, he had written a couple of other books. One of them was on insider trading by congressmen, the way in which people come to Congress uh, poor and leave extraordinarily wealthy. And he suggested one reason why that happens is, or one way in which they enrich themselves is by investing in companies which they know are going to be the beneficiaries of a change in government policies. And I guess the law has been changed in that respect, but, but nevertheless, amongst Americans, I think there was this enormous feeling in 2016 that it's got to change. Uh, I would just mention, by the way, that Peter Schweitzer also did uh, analysis for a couple of the other Republican candidates where he showed three generations of Trump connections to the mob. So I, I just wanted to point out that the appearance of corruption and the argument that there is corruption when it's unproven, it's not always the nicest thing to do. Trump may be corrupt as could be, I have no idea. But I think when we take certain appearances of certain relationships and blow them up, it cuts both ways and um, uh, Sometimes uh, we ought to have proof and we ought to have uh, some kind of a judicial system to, to, to prove it. Uh, the woman right here on the aisle, please. My name is Velma Montoya. I'm a former regent of the University of California. For Professor Buckley, you um, described the Constitution as an anti-corruption covenant and my question is with respect to punishment of corruption, when it is revealed, um, how do you compare the role of monetary fines versus the role of taking corruptors to trial and thus uh, allowing or enhancing billable hours for the trial lawyers? Well, actually, the Supreme Court ruled on what I think was a classic case of a corruption involving the former governor of Virginia, uh, Republican Bob McDonald. And um, the Wall Street Journal said this was the greatest decision of the Roberts Court. It was a decision which basically absolved the governor of a charge of corruption where he had put money directly into his pocket. Now, there, you know, there are various levels of misbehavior here, right? Uh, taking money from somebody, putting it in your personal pocket to do a favor to that person, uh, that's kind of class A corruption. Far removed from that is donating to a political campaign. 
But nevertheless, the Supreme Court uh, blessed that. Why? Because they narrowly didn't find that there had been an agreement to by the governor to benefit somebody who gave McDonald and his wife $170,000. It was a complete scandal in Richmond. The only reason, and, and the governor kept saying, do this, do this. It was all about a drug. The governor would go to meetings and say, look, I'm taking the drug. It's good, you know, great stuff. And nobody in his staff did anything because they knew he was dirty. And when he left office, he was charged by the FBI the next day. We have, it, I guess, I might even describe it as, in the case of the Wall Street Journal, a, a libertarian sentiment that we don't want to charge people with corruption. And I'd like to see that changed. Yeah. Right? I don't want to get into billable hours, but I'd like to make a strong distinction between people taking money personally versus for the cause. Mm -hmm. well, I, I basically agree with that. I thought that was a strange decision that the court made, and I think we'll live with it for a long time and be unhappy with the consequences of it. Um, and I think there is a difference between campaign finance and giving you money for your personal purposes. That doesn't mean that a quid pro quo with a big campaign finance attached to it is not also corrupt and illicit. Uh, it, it's, and, and it's rarely done that way anymore. It used to be pretty clearly done, but now it's against the law and people find other ways to intimate that it's helpful if you, you know, I'm really interested in this, that, and the other. Oh, and by the way, we'd love you to come to, uh, you know, LA or, or, or Houston, that, you know, a couple weeks from now and we put in a little event for you and so on and so forth. And so there are ways that people get around the law, but I think there are, we all know that certain things are corrupt and we all know that certain things are, are not corrupt and more innocent and where we don't know are the things in the gray. I also kind of don't think that giving lawyers billable hours is a, a terrible thing if they're trying a case, right? I mean, I think that the public actually benefits from seeing a case if it's a, if it's a real case and, uh, and they're hurt by a settlement where they have no idea if the settlement's just or, or, or unjust. I think largely people settle for two reasons. One, the, the entity or the agency that brings the case maybe doesn't even, isn't sure it can win in court, and the other entity doesn't know that it wants to waste the time in court or suffer the reputational damage. So both sides are, are less than Snow White in the decision-making process. I actually like when things go to trial. But having said that, I don't know that I'd want to stand trial myself. And it, it, even if I was innocent, I wouldn't want to waste all the time, even if I wanted to clear my name. But I think the billable hours issues, but you know, kind of, you're not talking about uh, phony uh, class action suits that are designed to mug people or something like that. It's a, it's a wholly different thing, in my opinion. So I just want to add one point. It's actually against federal law to spend a uh campaign finance contribution on private goods and people occasionally, it seems like once an election cycle, someone does, some staffer does it and they, and people have got sent considerable jail time for that actually. So that does, I'm not sure if it's true, but it does seem like to be a law that is, uh, is actually, and there's a gray area there too, but it is actually enforced. But Danny, Danny Rosinkowski went to jail because he gave away rocking chairs. Uh, that the people that and he had used some it had like furniture fund in his office to do so now that was public money but the same would have applied had he raised campaign money and then given away you know yeah. rocking chairs with the congressional stamp so um, the gentleman down here had right in the middle and 
second row. Thank you. My name is Ronald McLean. I teach uh, at the Kennedy School at Harvard. I'm from Bolivia. Uh, given that the virtue ideal has not really worked well throughout history, there is a growing consensus that there are more than corrupt people, there are corrupt institutions. And that corruption itself is not a cause but a, a symptom. Uh, I was wondering if Professor Buckley had uh, something to say about this. And so change the focus from people to institutions themselves. Thank you. Something about uh, changing the focus. Uh, he wants, would like to change the focus and would ask about changing from people to institutions. Yeah, to well, institutions. you know, the, um, I've, I've, I've made a, a nice career of, of coming to the United States from a parliamentary country and, uh, and, and devoting years to dumping on the <laughs> American governmental institutions. Um, you know, what, uh, let, let me describe a scandal in Canada which really, as much as anything, elected Justin Trudeau. A friend of mine, a Canadian senator, appointed from Prince Edward Island, billed travel expenses between Prince Edward Island and Ottawa where he lived, and someone said it's improper because he's living in Ottawa. And over three years this came to $90,000 which is chump change, right? Um, he was told by the Prime Minister Harper, you've got to repay the money. So he repaid the money. And you're wondering now, if he didn't have to repay it, if Price Waterhouse said he didn't have to repay it, and he repaid it, where was the scandal? The, the scandal was he had to borrow the money to do so. That's a scandal. It elected Justin Trudeau. What I'm saying is your institutions can be set at such a fine pitch that things we would think ridiculously absurd here rise to the level of a scandal that, that defeats a government. What are the differences? I mentioned one, the, you know, the front bench. Look, a, a, a Trump could never be elected in a parliamentary system. Filtration, Madison's filtration system would take care of that. Indeed, who could be elected amongst American presidents in a, in a parliamentary system where you have to come to your feet and speak intelligently and with wit on the issues of a day and in Canada in two languages? I mean, you know, uh, an imperious Obama, I don't think, would make enough friends to do it. I don't think bumbling uh, George W. Bush would do it. The only person I think who could possibly have done it was Bill Clinton, but then he would have been uh, defeated in a no-confidence motion in 1998, right? So the other thing about this is the irresponsibility of a presidential system. We, we had a, uh, a terrible crisis. Thank God it's over. The government will shut down for three days, right? Thank God our, our long national nightmare is over, right? But who was responsible? No, we don't know who's responsible. What we see is finger pointing. Whereas if you have a unified government, right, there's only one person who's responsible and that's a prime minister. And if there's anything, if there's any problem on his watch, he's responsible. There's no question about that. And then you have the division of powers. Uh, there is no Republican party, right? In, in parliamentary systems, there's a national Tory party in, in England, a national liberal party in, in Canada. 
And here, is there a National Republican Party? No, there's, there's a Trump Republican Party. There are, you know, state parties, and there was whatever was in John McCain's head this morning, right? So you don't have that unified power where if you have some jerk running for you in, in your party, you can turf them out, as happens in a parliamentary system. So there, there are all these institutional ways to cure these kinds of problems in a parliamentary system, which would not have been apparent to the founders in 1787 because they had nothing like that to compare it to. Well, I, I spoke about the, this what? a little bit earlier. I, I spoke a little earlier about, you know, why I don't think the presidential parliamentary section of the book is the strongest part of the book. I, you know, I, if you look at the last 50 years, you know, has Britain been governed better than the United States? Has Canada been governed better than the United States? You can make an argument, yes, no, maybe, different places, different problems, so on and so forth. But given the size of our country, I think that we'd be very unwilling to change all the nink and poops in a given party in a given state and a given locality and so on and so forth. So we're not going to have a virtuous uh, parliamentary system here and it would be so hard to change. So in a, in a way, it's an interesting conversation, but, uh, and I enjoy it as a political scientist, but I don't think that in the end it, it gets us very, very far. And I'm not sure the outcomes are all that different. I mean, Britain recently it seems to me to be no less coherent or unified than the United States. Its political outcomes in some cases were actually worse in recent years. And, you know, I, so I, I think that constitutions are important to, to the gentleman's earlier point about institutions. I think institutions, institutional incentives are very important. Uh, but I don't think that over time the parliamentary presidential issue is, is dispositive. I'll, I'll give you one example that uh, Nigeria had a parliamentary system. It, it, it fell into a, a horrifying uh, dictatorship. It then tried to create a presidential system. It wrote its, its constitution badly and it wasn't clear where one started and the other ended. And the new president then uh, went and he uh, put the majority leader of the Senate in jail because he didn't pass his budget which might have been a good idea here at one time or other, but we never went that far. I was sent with a group of people to help them work through their constitutional issues. And we served five meals a day in order to align their self-interest with the, the seminars we gave. And in, 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 the, in the end, we worked through the problem. Uh, in, in, there were institutional problems, but the parliamentary system didn't solve them and the presidential system didn't solve all of them either. In some level, there had to be something in the political culture where they decided to work through this coordination issue and, and go in a different direction. They ultimately did, and while it's far from nirvana, uh, the institutional roadblocks of both had to be overcome, both systems had to be overcome before they could, they could solve the problem. Let me say this in favor of uh, regression analysis. When you do that sort of thing, what you do is you line up all presidential countries and all parliamentary countries, and you look at all of the possible variables that might influence things. And when you run the numbers, you conclude that presidential governments are not good for public virtue or for liberty. And when you're doing that, you're not taking one individual country versus another. That's like anecdotal evidence. You're looking at them in mass. And what you conclude in the end is the American system really didn't transfer very well. It didn't travel very well. And you conclude that if America remains free as it does, and you know more or less virtuous, shall we say, 
It's because it's American, not because of its constitution. So let me do a follow-up question to this for Mike, but either one of you. Uh, And it just seems to me to be implied here, which is many Americans believe as an institution that Congress is corrupt. Now, you've had a lot of experience down to this day in Congress looking at it. Is it, are the Americans right about that? And if, if they're not, are there things, what are the things to be concerned about as an institution? So corrupt in the sense that they're talking about it, everybody's bought off, I think probably not really, but money does matter and people don't do things they think they should do because they're afraid of confronting $500,000 in a a primary six weeks later or whatever the issue is. I think that, that matters. One might call that corruption, one might not. I think there's very little sticking money into people's pockets and buying their vote. I think it's much less corrupt than it once was. It's probably more corrupt than it should be. I think people are not right in this sense. I think they overestimate by a long shot the level of corruption in the system. I think uh, the, some of the, the least virtuous activity is just that they're beholden to interest groups that are terribly important in their city or their primary or their state, uh, especially in their primary increasingly. And uh, that means that they don't act in what they believe to be the public's interest. But again, we live in a second best world and mm. I'm willing to work with that. But I don't, in the sense that the average person means it's corrupt, they're bought and they're sold and they, sh- they know better. I think that you'd be amazed uh, what they don't know and how they can convince themselves certain things are right and so on and so forth. So I don't think in the, in the simple sense of that it's corrupt, it is very corrupt. In fact, I'd say pretty much the opposite. Uh, gentlemen, on the wall there, I think I would put it, on the left side, I try to go throughout the room in a random sort of way. Hi, uh, I'm Pat Spann, just myself. The, um, I, I'm curious, you know, you, we talk about corruption of institutions, but isn't it really um, a corruption of the individuals, of the of the lack of, in, maybe it's an, a, a cultural thing, the lack of personal integrity? I mean, um, I went to parochial school in the 50s, and um, the nuns taught me a certain way to behave. And it's like we've gotten farther and farther away from a sense of personal responsibility and, and morality. I'm not even sure how, in a secular society how you teach morality. But it, we, we blame the institution as opposed to going after the individual. I'm sure there are some honest congress, uh, congressmen down there but it's, so it's not necessarily the institution, it's, it's the corruption of the individual. And I don't know how we, I don't know how we fix that. Do, do you guys have an idea? Well, the, the never too much to be praised, George Mason had an idea. In section 15 of the Bill of Rights, which he authored in 1776, he expressed the belief that no government can really be founded except upon the personal virtue of individuals, their temperance, their industriousness, uh, yada, yada, I forget what else. Interestingly, that's still part of the Virginia Constitution. I guess if you're from Virginia, you're kind of bound to believe that. The only thing is, I don't see the government doing much in terms of a moral rearmament crusade, except conceivably making things worse. Anybody who imagines any great reformation in the morals of mankind is plainly living under an illusion, said David Hume, and I guess I agree with that. 
Um, I am not a Catholic myself, but I spent 23 years teaching in Catholic institutions, big fan of Catholic education. I always thought the priests treated the nuns rather roughly when they talked to the high school boys, you know, did you learn that son from the nuns? And they'd say, yes, sir, father. But, uh, uh, and I think they do a great job of moral education. I don't, though, think that if you were doing a regression analysis like Frank suggested we should do and you looked at every single variable, that Catholicism would rank terribly high in predicting virtue rather than vice in a political system. So I do think that that institutions do matter. And I'll go back to the example of India, but it, it, it occurred in China too, and it occurred in every American city when we developed our rail systems and our highway systems and so on and so forth. If you go through a public official who can block your activity, and it's cheaper to buy the, the public official off rather than have some open, transparent system, the, you will end up somebody may not be you, you know, who, who live by a prophylactic ethic, but somebody will buy him off or her off. And that was what India was all about. You'd get paid next to nothing to, be a, uh, to, to give licenses, but you'd be, you know, wealthier than a doctor because people would give you 25 bucks at a pop just to get their license done, and it adds up over time. So I think institutions do matter, and incentives within institutions do matter. And, you know, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr once wrote a book called Moral Man and Immoral Society, and I think he sort of gets at the dichotomy. We can be great people at home, very moral, very good. We might even hate being corrupted, but in the institutional arrangements within which we work, it's a real problem. I, I had to give a series of seminars with other people in Czechoslovakia not long after the end of communism. And these people were distraught at how much corruption had been introduced into the, the shareholding operations of the newly privatized industry. And they were just emptying out companies and shareholders were left with a shell while oligarchs were getting huge amounts of money. Now, they did much better than the Russians in this regard, but they were, they, their moral individual act views were being destroyed by the institutional arrangements that encouraged opposite behavior. So I think institutions do matter and the incentive structure within them are very important. I would only add quickly, in Federalist 10, James Madison says you can't count on uh, moral people being in charge and morality is not really a constraint on really bad behavior by governments. And so institutions, are like the Dewey part actually that Mike mentioned, institutions rely on them to direct people to be better than they're going to be. One more question. In the back, she's 3N, the lady 3N from the back, or 4, maybe. Thanks very much. My name is Bonnie Wachtel. I'd like to go back for a minute to the comments that were made from the moderator from Cato, because I think you were getting at the central idea that I don't think has been properly delineated here, which is that in the form of the highly leveraged redistributionist welfare state that we have now, democracy itself is a corrupt system. And everyone has known this from the beginning that their individuals are not prevented or in many ways even discouraged from voting their own interest. This is what we see in the, the big social welfare pro programs and how that corrupts politicians of the need to keep them. And the real interesting piece of this, of course, is that 
that type of corruption is enormous and actually threatens to bring the whole system down and damage the country. In comparison with what you're talking about, the stuff you're talking about at the individual level, I would have to say very penny ante. Now, here is the question. Now, here's the question. The The only interesting solution I've heard for this, and I have no reason to believe it would work. By the way, as we all know, democracy is the worst system in the world, except for all the others. That that goes without saying. But it was Jonathan Rausch's suggestion that you need to reintroduce earmarks so the politicians have something to fight with, fight back with, if you're going to change, make the major changes to the system of these big programs that are unsustainable. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that suggestion? Fight fire with fire, so to speak? Um, well, John's point, uh, I think I would rely more on expert opinion from, because uh, uh, many of my colleagues, at least one of them, was, was against earmarks. At the time, it was pointed out that there was no good correlation to total spending, scope of government, or anything like that. But there was a sense that it, uh, it there was a belief that it uh, contributed to larger government and so on. I think that case is probably pretty weak. It makes us, there is also a libert, I should say a libertarian point of view that anything that makes the system work harder and makes it more difficult to do anything is it called a good thing. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's part of where the earmarks uh, the argument for them is you pay some cost for them, but it does make the political system work better. Let me mention the trial of Rod Blagojevich, Blago, <laughs> you guys remember him? You know, Illinois has a distinction that four of its ex-governors are in prison. Blago is one of them. When Obama was elected in 2008, his Senate seat fell vacant and it, li- it rested with the governor, with Blagojevich, to choose a successor, and he approached the White House and said, well, you know, I could appoint your friend Valerie Jarrett, but in return I'd like a seat in the Senate, in the cabinet, right? And that was one of the charges against him, which brought him to trial. And in the Seventh Circuit, while they found in other respects he well-deserved prison time, that particular bit of horse trading didn't. Why? Well, Frank Easterbrook noted that, Judge Frank Easterbrook noted that it is said that in the 1952 Republican Convention, Governor Earl Warren promised to throw the California delegation towards Dwight Eisenhower if Warren was appointed to the Supreme Court. And said Easterbrook, any rule of law, any criminal system that makes a felon out of Earl Warren just ain't going to work. So we're going to accept a certain amount of horse trading, even horse trading for personal advantage. Um, And I guess while I regret earmarks as much as pretty much anyone, it does seem to be something that follows, sadly, from the unfortunate separation of powers. Uh, Let me say two things. Uh, Let me go back to the first point about the the real problem is entitlements and the percentage of GDP spent on entitlements. I think uh, Gordon Tullock actually had a very ins- interesting insight into that. That's when you say I'm more of a libertarian than I know. I mean, I've, I've read all the literature. Uh, but he had, a very, he had a very interesting insight, uh, which is that at a certain point, you can't get enough GDP just from very wealthy people. 
in order to fund all this stuff. So you have to then start getting it from ordinary people. And when you get to that point in the curve, you have real politics of do I tax extra, do I spend extra, or what we seem to be now doing from everybody in government for the last 30 years, just except Bill Clinton, where I served, by the way, where we left with a surplus, uh, is we increase the deficit rather than resort to the issue. But uh, I think the, the, uh, the issue is, is, do you have a democratic system that can look at the trade-offs of spending versus taxing? Uh, I don't think, by the way, uh, earmarks are powerful enough to solve that problem. I, I'm not, I, I don't oppose them for a different reason, which is I think you have to have members of the House of Representatives doing something for their constituents rather than just voting along with their party because they're afraid of a tough primary. And it gives them something to do that connects them to their voters and all the rest. And there will be some horse trading, and that may be bad or it may be not so bad or whatever. I, I don't find it a big huge issue, but it won't solve the problem of the percentage of GDP that's spent on entitlements. There are just too many other things that contribute to that. And if someone says, well, you know what, I'm going to cut Medicaid so that you can't put your grandmother in the nursing home, even though she's destitute, but I brought home that new science center at the university. I don't think there's, a, there's a much symmetry in that, but, you know, uh, and so I, in my experience, it's hard to buy a vote with something that simple. Our book today has been The Republic of Virtue, How We Tried to Ban Corruption Failed and What We Can Do About It by Frank Buckley. Thanks to Frank for coming today. If you want to buy a copy of this, and I bet Frank would sign it, you can come to lunch upstairs after this. Thanks also to Mike Levy for his insightful comments on all of this. A very strong performance as expected. And right now, I would like to invite everyone both to thank our uh, author and our uh, commentator, but also 